Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey, hello, and how are you? And welcome to this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we discuss some of the best moments, best names, and best memories in sports history. I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and I hope you're having a great day, great evening, or a great night, wherever you're listening to and whenever you're listening. And we're back again with another show highlighting the best in sports history, and I appreciate you taking time out to give us a listen. And as a reminder, please subscribe to this podcast if you like what you hear here and check out our Twitter page at HistoricallySP2 for your daily dose of sports history. Now, on today's episode, we're going to be talking about the recently played Grey Cup and the newly crowned CFL champion, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, who rallied to beat the Hamilton Tiger Cats in overtime for their second consecutive Grey Cup championship, albeit played in non-consecutive years because of COVID. That's our main event this this episode. Also, later on in the program, I'm going to get a little personal and go off the beaten path to high school football, and more specifically, Louisiana high school football, and a team that defied the odds and brought a football championship to a town and a program known for basketball. And so, and also, of course, we will have our top five historic events over the past week. So pump up the volume and you're listening to Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a proud member of the Sports History Network. The Pigskin Tales Podcast is all about the lesser-known pro football players. Yes, there are stories about the ones we know, like Brad Tarkenton and Harold Red Grange. But have you ever heard of Ernie Nevers? How about Dave Osborne or even Grady Alderman? These men created their own path to the NFL. How did they do it? Listen to the Pigskin Tales podcast. Now streaming on your favorite music platform. Go to pigskintales.com. Hello, sports fans, and welcome back to the program. I'm Dana Augusta, your host, and you're locked in to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And in this week's main event, we're going to pay tribute to the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, who won the 108th edition of the Great Cup against the Hamilton Tiger Cats. And they did it on the Tiger Cats' home field of Tim Hortons Field. And they've claimed a 33-25 overtime victory for their quote-unquote second straight Great Cup title. Now, the Great Cup, for the most part, is Canada's Super Bowl. And just like its contemporary here in the United States, 
it brings together people from across the country for more than just a football game, but it's also a celebration of Canadian culture. This year, the the Bombers, led by head coach Mike O'Shea and running back Andrew Harris, won their second consecutive Grey Cup, although the ninth to 2020 season had been canceled due to the coronavirus pandemic. Now, to give you a little background on the Grey Cup, it was commissioned in 1909 by Albert Gray, then Canada's Governor General, who originally hoped to donate it for the country's senior amateur hockey championship. But after the Allen Cup was later donated for that purpose, Gray instead made the trophy available to the Canadian Dominion Football Championship of Canadian football. Now, the trophy has a silver chalice attached to a large base on which the names of all the winning teams, players, and executives are engraved. Now, the Grey Cup has been broken on several occasions, stolen twice, and held for ransom, and it survived the 1947 fire that destroyed numerous artifacts housed in the same building. The Grey Cup was first won by the University of Toronto Varsity Blues. And from 1916 to 1918, play was suspended due to the First World War and in 1919 due to a rules dispute. Now, the game has been typically contested in in an East versus West format since the 1920s. And the game has always been played on a Saturday until 1968. But since 1969, except for 70, it has always been played on a Sunday. Typically held in late November and in some years, but not since 1972, the game was played in early December and mostly in outdoor stadiums. The Grey Cup has been played in inclement weather at times, including the 1950 quote-unquote mud bowl in which players reportedly came close to drowning in puddles, and in 1962 infamous fog bowl when the final minutes of the game had to be postponed to the following day due to heavy fog. And the 1977 Ice Bowl contested in a frozen over artificial turf at Montreal's Olympic Stadium. And most most recently, the 2017 game, snow fell at times heavily throughout the contest. So the the Great Cup has been known to have inclement weather, bad weather at times, but it makes also for a very interesting contest. Now, the Edmonton Eskimos formed the Great Cup's longest dynasty. They won five consecutive championships from 1978 to 1982. Mainly at the helm of that team, those great teams was a was a passer from the University of Washington that everybody know of. Called the name was Warren Moon. Competition for the trophy has been exclusively between Canadian teams, except for a three-year period from 1993 to 1995, when an expansion CFL South headed into the United States resulted the Baltimore Stallions, the only U.S.-based team winning the 1995 Grey Cup. And in total, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers have won 12 Grey Cup titles, five shy of the 17, won by the Toronto Argonauts, which is the most in league history. Now, the Bombers, though, have the distinction of the most Great Cup game appearances with 26. Winnipeg won his first title in 1935, ironically, in Hamilton. On that afternoon, on the afternoon of December 7, 1935, the Bombers hold, held a 12-10 lead heading into the fourth quarter and, and put the game away when Fritz Hansen returned a punt 78 yards to clinch the game as well as their first title, becoming the first team from Western Canada to win the Grey Cup. 
One of the great eras of Winnipeg football was in the 1950s and 60s, thanks to a coach that is very familiar to NFL fans, future Minnesota Vikings head coach Bud Grant. He led the, he was the head man of the Bombers, becoming a coach in 1957. And he would coach there for 10 years and in the process, winning four great cups in five years, including the 1961 great cup, 21 to 14, the first title game ever to go into overtime and against, ironically, Hamilton. They were winning again in 62 in the aforementioned famous Fog Bowl, again against the Tiger Cats. Visibility in that game was so bad that with 9 minutes and 29 seconds remaining in regulation, the game had to be postponed and had to be resumed the next morning. And in the end, the Bombers won again 28-27. to Now, the Bombers wouldn't return to the Grey Cup again until 1984 when head coach Cal Murphy traded popular quarterback Dieter Brock to to Hamilton and replaced him with Tom Clements. Now, Clements would lead the Bombers to a 47-17 blowout over Hamilton in Edmonton, scoring the game's final 44 points. Now, Winnipeg would again win in 1988 and two years later in 1990 in dominating fashion, beating Edmonton 50-11 in Vancouver, which included 28 points in the third quarter, a Grey Cup record. Now, it would be the last Grey Cup until the Bombers would win it in 2019, led by running back Andrew Harris and defeated the Tiger Cats once again, 33-12 in Calgary. Harris became the first person in Grey Cup history to win the Most Valuable Player Award as well as the Dick Suderman Award, which is given to the Most Valuable Canadian Player. With the 2021 Grey Cup, the Bombers have won a total of 12 Grey Cup titles, so congrats to the newly minted CFL champs from Winnipeg. Now coming up is this week's Top 5, and in this edition we will feature the highest scoring game in NBA history, two running backs with historical performances, and a team that reaches perfection and the end of an era in pro football. So stay tuned. And we're back with this week's show of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. I'm Dana Augusta, your host. And um, just a reminder out there that we do have a sponsor here of not only this show, but of all the shows here on the historic on the uh, Sports History Network, and that is newspapers.com. Now, if you're listening to this podcast or any other one of our uh, podcasts here on the network, you know that you, you we're serious sports fans here. And if you're into sports history, you do need to check out newspapers.com. Now, at that website, newspapers.com, you can get access to over 640 million pages worth of news from the United States, from Canada, and from all other countries in Europe, actually. And uh, to get a free one-week subscription to newspapers.com, you can do that by visiting the Sports History Network slash newspapers. And with a paid subscription, you will also be helping to support this, the production of this and other shows on the network. So that's sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers. And also, as a reminder, everyone out there to check out our Twitter feed at historicallysp2 for your daily dose of sports history. 
you know, written by yours truly, Dana Augusta, as well as, you know, you could drop us a line at our email address, which is historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And finally, don't forget to hit that subscribe button wherever you hear this podcast so you can get new episodes anytime they come out. Now, at this point of the show is our top five. And usually we talk about the top five moments in sports history from the week that was. And this has been one incredible week of sports history and with a lot of things that was going on. And so let's start things off right here with number five. The Detroit Pistons defeat the Denver Nuggets in the NBA's highest scoring game. Now, on December 13, 1983, fans that filled into Denver's McNichols Arena came to see the Nuggets face the Detroit Pistons. And they had no idea what would they be witnessing on this little publicized game right before Christmas. Now, when it was over, nearly four hours later, the 9,000 fans on hand had witnessed the highest scoring game in NBA history. With the visiting Pistons edging the Nuggets 186 to 184 in triple overtime. With scoring like that, you may think they've been a record of three-point field goals in that game. Actually, there was only two threes hit in the entire game, including the three overtimes. In the loss, Nuggets forward Kiki Vandeweghe led all scores with 51 points, while teammate and future Hall of Famer Alex English finished with 47 in 50 minutes of action for the Nuggets. And also, future Nuggets coach Dan Issel chipped in with 35. Now, Isaiah Thomas led the Pistons with 47 points and 17 assists, while teammate John Long scored 41. Kelly Trapuca, which is the son of former Denver Broncos quarterback Frank Trapuca, scored 39 points, including 12 in the second overtime period, which was all of the points the Pistons were scored in that extra period. Number four, Bears runner scored six touchdowns at Wrigley Field. On a mud-soaked field at Chicago's Wrigley Field on December 12, 1965, Bears running back Gale Sayers, a.k.a. the Kansas Comet, had one of the greatest performances in NFL history, scoring six touchdowns and a 61-20 win over the San Francisco 49ers. Sayers had four rushing touchdowns of one yard, seven yards, 21 yards, and a 50-yard run, and later added an 80-yard touchdown reception from quarterback Rudy Bukic. To top off his amazing afternoon, Sayers scored on an incredible 85-yard um, punt return for a touchdown, weaving throughout the entire punt, punt coverage team of the 49ers. He, in total, Sayers gained 113 yards on only 9 carries and hit 89 yards receiving on just 2 catches. Talk about efficiency. Number 3. Bills running back breaks 2,000 yards in a single season. Now, in the early 1970s, the standard for running back success was a 1,000-yard season. Gaining 2,000 seemed unthinkable, but on December 16, 1973, Buffalo Bills running back and Hall of, Fame, and, um, Hall of Famer and Heisman Trophy winner O.J. Simpson did that unthinkable thing. Now, on a frigid, snowy day at Shea Stadium in New York, the Bills, which was the Bills' final game of the season against arch-rival Jets, the Juice needed 197 yards to reach 2,000. And in late in the fourth quarter, on a pitch from quarterback Joe Ferguson, he finally reached 2,000 yards. That season, OJ finished with 2,003 yards rushing, 
That record would stand until 1984, which was broken by Rams running back Eric Dickerson, who still holds the record for most yards rushing in a single season. Number two, the Dolphins achieve regular season perfection. Now coming off of a humiliating loss to the Cowboys in Super Bowl VI, the Miami Dolphins looked to return to the Super Bowl the next season. That was their mission. As it turned out, the Dolphins' quest to return to the big game became a campaign with historical proportions. On December the 16th, 1972, playing division rival Baltimore, the Dolphins shut out the Colts 16-0 to become the first in modern NFL history to complete a regular season unbeaten and untied. Later with wins over the Cleveland Browns and the Pittsburgh Steelers in the AFC playoffs, the Dolphins would return to the big game and this year they wouldn't be denied. Thanks to stingy defense led by Super Bowl MVP Jake Scott, linebacker Nick Bonacondi, and defensive tackle Manny Fernandez, the Dolphins defeated the NFC champion Washington 14-7 in the Los Angeles Coliseum, avenging their loss from the season before and in the process becoming perfect. And the number one event that happened this past week in sports history was the final regular season games of the American Football League. Now on the weekend December 13th and December 14th of 1969, that marked the end of an era in professional football. That weekend would be the final regular season games of the AFL, which had enjoyed 10 seasons of unbridled success, forcing a merger with the National Football League, which would take effect the very next season. On the final weekend, there was one lone Saturday game, and the Raiders defeated the Chiefs 10-6 in the Oakland Coliseum. The Raiders finished the AF with the AFL's best record with a 12-1-1 mark. In the games taking place that Sunday, the Broncos defeated the Bengals 27-16. Denver quarterback Pete Lisk tossed three touchdown passes in the game, while the Broncos finished the year with a record of 5-8-1, while Cincinnati, in their second season of existence, finished 4-9-1. The defending Super Bowl champion Jets defeated rival Miami 27-10 at the Orange Bowl. Jets quarterback Joe Namath passed for two first-half first touchdown passes en route to their second consecutive Eastern Division title. The Jets finished that campaign with a record of 10-4, while the Dolphins ended the year with a 3-10-1 mark. In the Astrodome, Pete Beathard led the Houston Oilers to a thrilling 27-23 win over the Boston Patriots, erasing a nine-point fourth-quarter deficit. Houston finished their year with a six-win, six losses, and two ties, while the Patriots finished 6-10. And, and in the final AFL regular season game played at San Diego Stadium, the Chargers crushed the Buffalo Bills 45-6. John Hadle recorded a pair of touchdown passes while running back Dickie Post had a pair of scores on the ground. The Chargers finished the year 8-6 while the Bills finished 4-10. And, and that was this episode's top 5 and to wrap up the show would be our usual shout out. And this week I'll get a little personal, talking about a little known high school football team from my hometown in Louisiana who captured the imagination of fans, students and graduates alike winning his first state championship. Stay tuned.
we're back, ladies and gentlemen, and sports fans alike, with our final segment of the show, which is which is what we call our shout out. And on this episode, I will send a shout out to a high school football team that defied the odds and won his very first state championship in football. Now, as a lot of you know, the show originates from the suburbs of Atlanta. But I was born and raised in a town called New Iberia, which is along the Gulf Coast of Louisiana. Now, unlike a lot of towns in the South, New Iberia has a long tradition of great high school basketball teams. I've often said to people that my hometown is a basketball oasis in a football desert. Yet, this past weekend, the residents of New Iberia turned out for its traditional Christmas parade. But, however, this year's event's main, main guest of honor was not only jolly old St. Nick, but it was the Tigers of Westgate High School. Now, in an effort of complete disclosure, I did attend this school, mostly because it didn't exist when I was in high school back in the late 1980s. But had it existed, that is where I would have went. The actual campus I am, though, familiar with, because at the time, it was New Iberia Freshman High. And yes, for those of you out there, a school just for ninth graders. I know that seems very foreign to a lot of people. But before that, it was Jonas Henderson High School. It was a high school for black students before the schools integrated in my town back in the late 60s and early 70s. Now, Westgate High School opened in 1999 and extended the city's tradition of basketball excellence, claiming a state championship on the hardwood, cementing his identity as a, as a basketball power. Yet, football would be the headlines of this year. The Tigers entered the Louisiana State High School playoffs as a fifth seed in a 32-team field. And they began their postseason run with a 26-6 win over John F. Kennedy High School out of New Orleans. Then defeated Leesville 16-7, then followed that up with a 34-32 triumph of Northwood High School out of Shreveport. In the state semifinals, the Tigers would face the defending state champion Edna Carr High School wide out of New Orleans. Westgate's run of pro-season success would continue as they would claim a 27-20 win and advance to their first ever appearance in the Superdome for the state title against another team out of the suburbs of the Crescent City, Warren Easton. In a defensive struggle, the Tigers overcame the odds and their inexperience in the big game and notched a slim and exciting 14-13 win, giving Westgate its first state championship. But this run in the postseason did way more than just bring a little title to bring a title to this little community in South Louisiana. It brought together a town in a way no one thought possible. For one of the few times that I could remember, Supporters from other schools, not only in New Iberia, but all over Iberia Parish, came together in one cause and supported this school on their way to achieving that season-long dream. They captured the imagination of the city and gave the younger generations a standard to live up to, both on and off the field. So, with that, congratulations to the 2021 Class 4A Louisiana State Champion Westgate Tigers from us here at Historically Speaking Sports. So that does it for this show, and thank you guys for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast, and also feel free to drop us a line at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com or on our Twitter page at historicallysp2. Once again, you guys, thanks for listening, and see you next time. 
Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast. <laughs>